Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's a beautiful day out there. The blue sky is all around us and uh, the world is looking like a much better place, isn't it? Now, many of you have said to me, for heaven's sake, please don't talk about Harry. Please don't give us any more guff about the Prince of Darkness or whatever he's now become. But it's very difficult not to do Prince Harry today because for a start on the front pages, Harry spills his secrets in devastating memoir, Please Don't Marry Camilla, uh, UK monarchy facing its worst crisis for 30 years, crisis for royal family as Harry says, William attacked me, oh spare us, front page of the Daily Mail, front page of the Sun, Harry did coke and weed. Let's have a look at that one. I mean, it's very, very difficult to avoid uh, this little nitwit, and that's what I'm going to call him. Uh, the prince formerly known as Herbert, who has now opened his heart, opened his wallet, opened his mouth, opened his mind, uh, told us how many times he smoked dope, how many times he snorted cocaine, uh, how he lost his virginity, you know, why he couldn't fight back against Prince William, uh, even though he used to kill 25 members of the Taliban uh, without even blinking uh, in the desert in Helmand province. I just don't know really where to begin, but I just think that we should disown this boy, uh, who is not a boy, he's nearly 40 years of age after all. Um, he's married to a woman who has completely ruined not only him, uh, but the entire royal family. It's a bit like one bad apple uh, in the barrel, which appears to be rotting uh, the entire carcass of the royals. It's unbelievable what's going on. The royal family, I think, in my view, have to do something quite stern uh, and quite soon before they disappear up their own backsides, because it's no longer good enough for King Charles to say nothing. It's no longer good enough for William to say nothing. Uh, I think it's time they cut this bloke off at the knees and said, thanks very much indeed. No more money, no more titles, no more welcome back to Britain. In fact, no more British passport. Just take it all away and let him sit in his own juices in Montecito. Good luck to him. Imagine waking up next to her every morning. Or in his, her case, imagine waking up next to him every day. Go, what are we going to do today, Harry? Who can we screw over? How much money can we make from your horror show? Unbelievable. Anyway, Richard Tice is here, luckily, so we can talk about some other things, including electric cars, including the launch of uh, uh, Reform UK and their manifesto, which was launched this week, alongside Keir Starmer's rather lacklustre speech and Rishi Sunak's five-point plan for saving the nation. There's a lot to do, a lot to talk about, uh, and we're going to do all of it. And of course, we want to hear from you as well, 0344 499 1000. Angela Levin will be here. We'll be talking about the army uh, and how now dangerous it is going to be for Harry uh, to go anywhere, because uh, he's put a massive target on his back. Uh, and he could be attacked at any moment. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Scarcely believable that we've managed to survive this week, but here we are. Uh, it's Friday. Uh, there's another rail strike, by the way, but I mean, it's just like every other day now, isn't it? Who cares? Uh, Mick Lynch, get lost. This is Talk TV. Well... Here we are. Richard, a very good morning to you. A very good morning to you. It's hard to know where to begin, isn't it? It is, it, isn't it? But it is. actually, I have got some good news. Have you? Yes, I have. Go on. In that uh, my show on Sunday mm. is going to be a Harry and Meghan free zone. Well, do you know, it's interesting because we've been saying for quite a, a long time now, well, it can't really, there can't be any more revelations to come out. <laughs> but every time we say that, more revelations I, come I out. I know, but I'm, I'm hoping that you'll cover everything today yes. so that I can make it a free zone. But I'm going to start, actually, mm. by slightly disagreeing with you. Are right? you? Well, I understand your your all of our frustration and and the the sort of the the gut instinct that uh, King Charles and Prince William should do something. Mm. But actually, 
I think they gain the most respect around the world and maintain the moral high ground actually by saying nothing, mm. by learning that lesson that the Queen taught us all, never complain, never explain, just get on with it. Yes. And do your job, do it well, and you learn respect and admiration. And so for me, I think that that's what they should do. And she, the danger if they go down the route of trying to respond mm. or saying recollections may vary, which yeah. is a, a wonderful sort of catch-all, is that Harry and Meghan then respond again. And you get into a never-ending... Yeah tit for tat. So but, for we've that all reason, been, but we've all been in these situations, sometimes with members of the family, sometimes with, with partners, where, you know, one of the people in the in the relationship, whatever it is, goes a bit doolally, right? Which is what we've got here. Yeah. And sometimes if you let that go, and it just gets worse and worse and worse, it just snowballs well, into God knows where it ends up. But I think ultimately, <laughs> we, we must hope that in a sense, they just wear themselves out. I mean, certainly the rest of the world is 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 fatigued and tired with it. And so I think eventually people, more and more people will just say, we're done, yeah. we're just, and, and stop listening. And, and that's why I think actually maintaining the most dignified silence and just letting it wash is, is I think, the, it's a tough thing to do. It must be incredibly hard for the royal family yeah. with everything that's going on. But actually, I think that's the smart thing to do. It might well be the smart thing to do, but is it sustainable? Because you say that they'll run out of steam and they'll run out of things to say. But, you know, these people have got an agenda. They've got probably um, maps out in front of them. You know, years of this nonsense, you know, because we were talking to somebody yesterday who said, well, of course, this is only the first of Harry's yes. books. He's got another one uh, in the pipeline. She's going to do a book as well. So she'll be giving her version of events probably, you know, a year from now, you but, know, which will be all about that, the same stuff. But in a sense... The more and more they say, the more and more of it turns out just simply not to be factually accurate. And so I think... Well, most what, of it, I think, is factually questionable. At best questionable. Mm. And so actually the value of what they say will very quickly drop rapidly. Mm. And that's why I think they'll sort of run out, frankly, of, of people to try and sell this stuff to. And, and I just think, in a sense, the royal family maintain the moral high ground. Mm. In, so hard to do. Yeah. All of our gut instinct... Is is to push back to say, hang on, folks. Yeah. But this is the royal family. We're but surely about. nobody would forgive uh, uh, them, or everyone would forgive them, perhaps, uh, for taking the action that I suggest, which is to take the titles at least away. And I know that there's a constitutional problem with that because he remains Prince Harry. You can't apparently take that away because that's his birthright, and so she could then yeah, call it's, herself uh, a princess. I, I understand. I understand. But shouldn't they do something like that? No, no. I I I would urge to to hold off because. It's just, it looks a bit chippy, a bit vindictively revengeful. Yeah, Much good. as though, I don't, I don't, and I, we all understand that gut mm. instinct, but we're talking about the dignity and the <clears throat> the presence, the mystique, the magic mm. of the British royal family. But they've already you don't, destroyed that, You don't maintain they? that. They've destroyed, I think they've destroyed their own reputation. Mm. I don't think they've destroyed the reputation and the magic of the British royal family. And that is... I think it's it's one of the most admired institutions around the world through through thick and thin and and sadly mm. with Harry we've discovered that he's but not the brightest. But what they've cashed in on is that thin maybe a thin seam at the moment around the around the world and I include in that some Commonwealth governments who who drive as an anti-monarchist sure. agenda because it suits them because they quite like to uh, get paid a lot more money and say that they need to have reparations made to them you know because of all the terrible stuff that happened. But you know uh, there is a, a seam of of the world community uh, which doesn't like the royal family and doesn't see it as a magical institution and rather sees it as but, an outmoded, but if, rather unfashionable Yes, but if, if they end up 
being dragged into a, a never-ending tit-for-tat sort of gutter-press war yeah. between various factions mm. of the family, then it, it's, it's a very long way down. Mm. It really is. Uh, whereas I think if they, if they maintain uh, the dignity and the silence and remembering that actually, in a sense... I think the vast, vast majority of people want the royal family to to outlive all mm. of us, and indeed to outlive Harry and William, and, and yeah. to go on because it's it's one of the, the greatest strengths that the UK has. Well, one of the most bizarre aspects of all of it is is his kind of careering around. You know, they used to describe Boris Johnson as a, a sort of out of control shopping trolley. This guy's like an out of control <laughs> rally car, sort of hitting trees, you know, crashing off the course, you know, rolling over, getting out of the car, getting into another car. In one minute, he's saying he wants to have a reconciliation with his father. The next minute, uh, he's absolutely trashing the entire institution <coughs> absolutely. And, and his own reputation. No, I think you're absolutely right. Whether it's a fossil fuel car or an electric car is, is hard to know. Well, it but it's an out of control car. car. Well, it can't be an electric car because obviously that would just come to a stop, wouldn't it? And you can't... Well, in a sense, that's what I'm hoping he does come to, which is come to a stop. I mean, the great thing about electric cars is that if you do go on some kind of rampage, eventually the car will stop you. Well, that's also true with a fossil fuel car. I mean, that does neatly bring us on to um, the fact that I, I have to take issue mm. with the challenge that you, you presented me earlier in the week, that, that I'm a numpty. Yes. Because I have an electric car. Now, uh, uh, of course, as ever, you've slightly simplified my accusation because my accusation was slightly more nuanced than that. I said that you're going to end up looking like a numpty because, as Howard Cox said uh, yesterday to me... Um, the Betamax generation will remember this. Those who are not part of it won't. But Betamax was the Sony system, uh, which a lot yeah. of people bought into, and then in the end, sort of was but, made but, redundant. But so that, that, your left. analogy only works if we get rid of electricity. We won't get rid of electricity. We'll always have that. So you'll always well, no. have the potential of electric cars. No. <clears throat> the question is, my point is, look, is is competition is good? So you know, I like an electric car, a because it's very quiet, and b because it's Why unbelievably do you want a quiet fast. Car? Well, because I do, because I, I, I just prefer a quiet car right. than a very noisy car. But I appreciate I mean, you want a noisy car. No, I don't but, particularly but want a noisy it's car. It's about but, personal I mean, choice. But all cars can be quiet. I mean, my car, for example, comes to um, a complete halt at the traffic lights and goes completely silent because it's got one of those eco yeah. engines, which most cars but, now have. But then when you're actually driving, it's very noisy. But when I put my foot noisy. in the accelerator, it makes the noise of a car. But, but talk, you see, it's yeah. interesting that you, you see, you, you criticise my choice of an electric car, but you've chosen a, a new car. You've chosen a wonderful Italian yeah. brand and at great expense. But I am slightly concerned that after a month, various bits seem to be falling off it, Mike. What's going on with your new car? I mean, they, well, seem, to have, they seem to have stuck various bits to it with think, stick. No, I think somebody's stolen something off it. But we're not going to get into that, right? We're not going to talk about that. But here's the thing. The problem with the electric car analogy is not that it's not like Betamax. The point is, is that, you know, there will be better technology because what the point that Howard Cox is making is that we've told uh, car manufacturers, the government has made policy that by 2030, and, there will no longer and, be any new and he's quite diesel right. and petrol cars. We're, and you agree with that? I do agree with that because yeah. I like choice. <clears throat> and I think that what you should be saying to the, uh, the, the, the combustion engine manufacturers yeah. is, is you say, Look, we need you to keep improving your engines mm. in the same way that technology in all walks of life yeah. never stops improving. That's great. Yeah. So keep improving the engines, keep improving the, the cleanliness of the fuel and the, the quality of the filters. So you, you inevitably reduce emissions. But mm. look, choice is a good thing. And, and those who want a quiet car can have a quiet car. And those who want a noisy car, yeah. like your good self, can have a noisy yeah. car. Great. I mean, I take slight issue with you describing my car as not simply <laughs> noisy. But anyway, we'll move on from we'll that. We'll move on. We'll move on from that. But the point is this. Surely at this moment in time, you know, it's, uh, it's far too ambitious to suggest that by 2030, people who want to buy or who have bought a diesel or a petrol car uh, and now have something that's actually yeah, worthless. No, it it, it, look, it is mad. completely... But, but what's also wrong is that people like Jaguar Land Rover, and I don't mean to 
single them out, but they're a British company with British uh, factories in this country. You know, they've already started the process of moving across to just making electric cars. And this is where it's... And that's a problem. It's a real problem. Mm. And that's why we're the only political party that would scrap the ban on this absurd ban on new uh, combustion engine car sales from 2030, which Mm. is utterly ludicrous. First of all, because what we should be doing is encouraging the manufacturers to invest in better technology. And the problem is, if we don't make this decision very soon, all of the manufacturers will stop investing Mm. in new technology for combustion engine cars. So the whole thing's mad, leaving aside the fact the grid and the chargers wouldn't be ready anyway no. if you thought it was a good idea, which I don't. I think, yeah. it's, a, I think it's an absurd idea. Right. And, and we will be proven right. I have no and doubt the thing, about that the whatsoever. One, the one thing that really puzzles me is that the, the simple solution in the meantime as a kind of hybrid version uh, of how to go forward would surely be hybrid cars. Yeah. But the government has now gone, oh, no, hybrid cars are just as bad as petrol cars because they take petrol. And, and of course, in a sense... We've learned, haven't we, to our bitter cost, that when the, when the government advises this is the right thing mm. to do, very well, most of the time, yeah. frankly, if you do the opposite or believe the opposite, yeah. you'll end up somewhere well, near people, the truth. Yeah. I mean, whether it was people, diesel cars, yeah. whether Most people bought diesel cars as a result, and, and more diesel cars were manufactured as a result of a recommendation made by Ed Miliband and Gordon Brown Correct. Uh, that diesel was cleaner. Yeah, which and, turned and out to cheaper. be completely, yeah, which turned now, out to be completely wrong. And now it's more expensive and dirtier. Yeah. It's, Amazing. It's, it's, it's utter madness. Yeah, it is. Utter madness indeed. Richard Tice is here. We're going to talk some more about the big parties uh, and what they said this week, what Rishi Sunak said, what Keir Starmer said, uh, what Richard Tice also said uh, when he launched the reform plan uh, for how to improve Britain. And we'll be back after this. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here. It is Friday uh, afternoon. Well, it's not Friday afternoon yet, is it? It's Friday morning. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Richard Tice is here. I'll be very excited because uh, it was actually a big week. I mean, aside from the Prince Harry revelations, which have been extraordinary, and I know many of you are going, just leave us alone. No, we can't do that because it is actually quite an important story, not just about the gossip around it, but also about the monarchy itself. And so uh, we will continue to bring you that, aside from when Richard's on Sunday at 10 o'clock, uh, when it will be a Harry-free zone. But let's talk a bit about uh, Richard Sunak, Richard, because uh, he launched his five-point plan. And I said at the time, out of those five things, you know, stopping the migrant boats, reducing the NHS waiting times, bringing down inflation by 50%, stopping uh, uh, or reducing the debt. I can't remember what the fifth one was. Uh, No, in a sense, the very fact of that shows how insipid the whole thing was. And what's extraordinary is that he wouldn't put a timetable on achieving any of these things. And also that weird thing that he said, well, we'll either do it or we won't. Well, sorry, that's not really a very acceptable way to run the country, is it? it, And I just think he just completely missed the point, Mm. which is that we're in the middle of the greatest crises. And there are so many crises, Mm. it's hard to know where to start and where to end. But you have to say, what actually is working in the country? And Mm. I think he just, he missed the point. He wouldn't commit to anything. And there was nothing specific. For example, on the migrant crisis, where uh, the polling now shows only about... 4% 4% of people believe we're going on top of it. Mm. He said, we're going to introduce a, no- a new law yeah. right, to stop it. Well, hang on. Right. That's exactly what they told us this time last year mm. when Boris was the Prime Minister. Yes. They said, we're going to have the new Nationality and Borders Bill yeah. that will deal with uh, the migrant crisis. Yeah. Well, that's now, well, that is like, now law. Also, isn't it a bit like saying we're going to make it illegal to be in possession of cocaine? Well, it's already yeah. illegal. It doesn't stop the smugglers exactly. and, the, and the dealers. makes no difference whatsoever. They've yeah. completely missed the point. And I say reform's the only party with a clear six-point plan based on what they did in Australia mm. that will stop the boats. Yeah. It is as simple as that. Yeah. And he won't talk about it. <clears throat> and then Starmer's speech, 
yesterday, which got obviously completely overshadowed yeah. by the, the Harry stuff. And look, it was very well crafted and it was lots of lovely words. But I can't remember words. one thing out exactly, of it. Exactly, that's the point. Right. And there was, again, no specifics. Uh, he tried to do a clever play on the, the, the slogan, Take Back Control, mm. and said he was going to give more power to local communities. What that actually means, he's going to create more bungling bureaucratic yeah. blockages yes. in, in also, the issue of, of managing. Seem, what he wants to do is give these rather ridiculous, because they are mostly ridiculous, local councils um, and local councillors, the possibility of having power over individuals in this country, um, you know, to make it impossible for you to either park somewhere or go it's, somewhere. It's a, uh, or drive it's a classic anywhere. socialist policy yeah. of creating basically more bureaucracy, yeah. more management, more diktats for people. And I'm saying, no, you've got to roll back the state. Yeah. You've got to make it smaller. So yeah. the speech that we that I gave on, on Wednesday, I was the first out of the blocks. I said, look, we're an incredible country. We've got so much potential. Mm. But the truth is, we've got all these crises. Wherever you want to start, uh, it's, it's what works in this country. And, you know, we've got an inflation crisis. We've got a productivity mm. crisis. We've got record waiting lists. Everything is going rapidly wrong. Yeah. The highest strikes for 40 yeah. years, the highest taxes for 70 years. I'm saying, look, with good leadership, we can fix all mm. of this. And I'm saying, I don't care who fixes it. I just want it fixed. Mm. And to make Britain great, you've actually got to make Britain work. Mm. And as we know, at the moment, Britain doesn't work. Well, because hardly anybody's actually working. Well, so this is the point. So right? this is the real crux of it. To make Britain work, you've actually got to make work pay. Mm. And because taxes are at their highest, and the taxes is it's affecting the lowest paid, the least will off the most. Mm. So I'm saying, we're saying at reform that you've got to lift the starting point at which anybody pays any income tax yeah. from twelve and a half grand up to twenty grand. Yeah. Right? That means that's thirty quid a uh, thirty quid a week mm. in everybody's pockets. Yeah. Fifteen hundred quid a year. And what that does, all of a sudden, that means the difference between starting working and making work pay as opposed to being on benefits. Mm. For those on low incomes, low pay, all of a sudden you get the differential. Because no one's talking about the other elephant in the room, which is that one in eight of the working age population mm. are trapped yes. on benefits. Well, there was an incredible story in Scotland the other day, 150,000 people, and I know Scotland's a much smaller country than England, but 150,000 people between the ages of 16 and 24 have never worked. Yeah, it, it, and never. This, is, this is an absolute scandal. It's a tragedy of wasted talent. And yes, of course... There are, there are far too many shirkers and skivers out there. But I think there's the vast majority of that 5.2 million with the right motivation, mm. training and enthusiasm mm. and support, <clears throat> we've got to get people back into work. Yeah. We're told there's a labour shortage. Yeah. I'm saying stop importing cheap overseas labour yeah. and let's get our own British people Which back into Brexit work. Which was what Brexit was meant to be about. <clears throat> Partly what was Brexit was supposed to be about. So the way you do that is you've got to make work pay. Mm. And so you've got to increase the threshold at which you start paying tax above what most people uh, would earn young people yeah. on benefits. So that way, so the cost of our plan of lifting it from 12 and a half grand to 20 grand is about 40 billion a year. Yeah. But if you get 2 million people of the 5.2 back into work of those on benefits, you'll save 30, odd, yeah. 30 to 40 billion a year. Right. So that broadly pays well, for Surely they've got to uh, sort of streamline the benefit system as well, because it seems to be all over the place. It's it seems all over the place. No rhyme or reason for what people can get, when they can get it, when they can stop being paid. You know, in other countries, they seem to manage that a lot better than it, we do. Exactly. So we're not managing it properly. And mm. of course, you know, where pe the whole point of benefits is where people are genuinely uh, vulnerable, disabled, sick, ill. Of course, we want a brilliant benefit system mm. that helps and supports those. But we've also got to help and support people back into work. 
quickly, rapidly and promptly, mm. with motivation, but also, actually, there has to be a bit of a carrot and stick. Georgia Maloney is starting yeah. to do this in Italy, saying, well, look, actually, if you've had a job opportunity within X period of time yeah. and you've turned it down, well, then don't expect that someone else is going to pay for you. We have to recognise there's no such thing as a free lunch. No, exactly Someone's right. paying for it. And exactly. But the other reason that this is not happening at the moment is because people look at the migrants coming over and they go, well, look what they get. They come here illegally. Um, they get put up in a hotel. They get given food. They get given money. Uh, they eventually probably get to stay here. Eventually, they probably get given some kind of property to live in. And then they say, oh, it's because I've got family here already who might have come illegally. Yeah. And the system is so bad that they end up staying. And, and people go, well, what, what, what do I get? And, and the truth is, you know, we are a great, kind and compassionate nation, but also we believe in fairness and we believe that actually work should pay. And it's not fair for those of us who are in work, who are striving, struggling. Many people on low pay are doing two or three mm. jobs through the week to make ends meet. And then suddenly realise, well, hang on, and these people are coming here for free yeah. illegally right. and getting all these benefits. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's, it's wrong, it's unfair, and I think quite rightly the British people are saying enough's enough. And what I'm saying is here's a specific, clear solution mm. that will get this country back on track. By the way, it would help resolve most of the strikes that are on at the moment. Yep. Because, for example, our plan, for your average nurse, our, our plan would mean an instant 6% increase in their take-home pay. So that's a long way towards yeah. what they're asking for. Yeah. And it's less inflationary to, <clears throat> to a sense, uh, increase your net take-home pay without increasing the gross salary. So, yeah. again, it's another win. Yeah, another win, um, another loss for uh, Messrs Sunak and Starmer, I would think. But, Richard, thank you very much indeed. We've got to run. Uh, Richard will be back 10 o'clock, of course, Sunday morning. Don't miss it. Uh, the, the Sunday sermon, always worth listening to. And uh, with the promise that it won't mention Harry. The idiot. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Well, I mean, what can you say about the Prince Harry situation that hasn't already been said? Well, I mean, let's face it, the highlights so far, if you want to call them that, uh, on the papers this morning and sort of some of the stuff that came out yesterday, uh, Prince Harry, how William and he begged Charles not to marry Camilla. That must make Camilla feel uh, particularly special. He admitted, admitted to taking cocaine and mushrooms, saying drugs let him see the truth. He talks about uh, having a conversation with a bin at one point. He talks about, as well, uh, smoking quite a lot of weed, of course, as well. Um, he says that uh, the Princess of Wales demanded an apology from Meghan uh, for saying she had a baby brain. He tries to talk about all the things that went on behind the scenes. It's pretty ridiculous, really, that he has decided to have this kind of brain dump uh, on the rest of the world. Many people now looking at him thinking, rather than feeling sorry for him, rather angry with him, actually, because he's made um, so much of his own private life um, monetized, if you like. He's made money from his own difficulties and he's made out uh, that he's got this terrible life instead of actually being happy to live the life that he wanted to live because he moved away from Britain, he moved to California, he's got two lovely children. I wonder what his children will make of all this um, when they finally grow up and realise that he and their mother spent their entire lives bitching and moaning about how awful everything was and how they were terribly hard done by. Let's have a look now uh, at the latest clip from the ITV interview, which is going out on Sunday, before we speak to Angela Levin. What was, di what was different here was this level of frustration. And you know, I talk about the red mist that I had for so many years, and I saw this red mist in him. He wanted me to, to, to hit him back, but I chose not to. 
there's a fair amount of drugs, marijuana, mm-hmm. magic mushrooms, cocaine. I mean, that's going to surprise people. But important to acknowledge. I want reconciliation, but first there needs to be some accountability. The truth, supposedly, at the moment has been there's only one side to this story, right? But there's two sides to every story. Yeah, except there's only one side to the story at the moment because the royal family simply are too classy, actually, to answer uh, many of the things that he's accusing them of doing. Let's talk to Angela Levin, our favourite royal biographer. Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. Um, It's hard to imagine the mindset of somebody like Prince Harry at the moment, isn't it? Because it's embarrassing, Um, it's kind of um, over the top, it's self-indulgent, it's all of those narcissistic things that you wouldn't want anyone that you knew to be telling you, right? Yeah, quite right. I mean, you cringe at some of the things, absolutely cringe. I think it's a terrible intrusion on William to say that they um, were both circumcised. Mm. I mean, he wants to say that about himself. Go ahead. But I mean, this is a private matter. He doesn't have to do that. This is the guy who absolutely loved privacy Mm. and was very important. He's also the guy who kept saying that it's very important to show compassion to those you know and those you don't know. There's nil compassion in that book. What's interesting is that the ghost writer obviously had an eye that everything was going to be seen through a dark screen. Mm. You can turn everything to be a negative. But Harry surely read it through and said, I'm not having this. This is not quite like this. This is not true. I found so many untruths. And one of them, very quickly, when he was single, he lived in Nottingham Cottage, mm. uh, in just a tiny place next to the palace. And um, when Meghan came early, she wanted to live with him, understandably. And she said at the engagement interview, they loved it because it was cosy mm. and it would just be very close. But then when they went for tea to William and Catherine, they were absolutely shocked at the lavish place they had, mm. 20 bedrooms and all that, where they had this tiny little cottage. And the fact is that they decided to stay there while £2 million was spent on renovating another sort of area of the palace for them. They then changed their mind, come the palace having spent the money, and decided not to stay there mm. in the Windsor instead. Now, That wasn't a case of depriving them. Harry goes on that they had to buy, you know, uh, cheap lights and furniture and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's a load of nonsense. They were there in a temporary. But also embarrassing because, you know, there are genuinely people this morning wondering whether they've got enough money to get through the weekend, wondering how they're going to get to see their, you know, sick relatives because there are no trains going anywhere and they have to read this guff from this overprivileged over uh, indulgent man who is no longer a boy let's face it who is now you know a grown man a father of two i said earlier what must his children be thinking i mean when these children grow up what will they think he was doing i agree with that if they ever get to see to read that book the respect that they should have for a father will absolutely go down the drain i mean it's an appalling admission of spite and nastiness and betrayal. Mm. So all the things that they've been pumping up, how good they are and how important it is to do well, will will just have no effect whatsoever. Mm. Um, and also the, the, the children, of course, don't know that 
grandparents and their and their relationships on on their father's side. Um, and all they speak to on their mother's side is is Megan's mother, Doria. Um, so the whole thing, I think it's all been blown up in this book. And I think he will come to regret it. It's I think it's self-destruction, mm. highest order. Because what's he going to gain out of that? Most People. Well, money, I guess. America, yeah, but obviously money doesn't mean anything to him because he's still miserable. Mm. If he was happy, if money made him happy, good luck. But unless it is that he still feels that Meghan isn't happy with uh, £20 million and she wants even more, that would make him unhappy. Mm. But otherwise, he should be very happy. 16 bathrooms, you know, it's amazing. Lots of land, we saw that on the um, Netflix series um but it's just that he he's destroying himself mm. really yeah he's also discouraging anyone to go and see a therapist because he obviously hasn't been helped in no. any way well he's i mean he's, he's exhibiting to me when i first went to america in the 1980s he's exhibiting to me what an awful lot of people in new york exhibited which was that going to see a therapist was a narcissistic exercise. And what it meant was that as soon as you met somebody uh, in a bar who you'd never met before, they'd tell you their life story, the first time they had sex, you know, what their favourite colour was. And you're kind of going, sorry, I didn't really ask you about any of that. I don't really want to know about any of that. Thanks very much indeed. You go over there and keep, keep it to yourself. It's a very un-British way to go, go about life, isn't it? Yeah, well, Harry has told us how he had sex yeah. when he was 17 outside in the garden. Ghastly. And also written like some kind of poor Mills and Boone novel, you know. Yes. Well, it is written in a way that is uh, really unpleasant to, mm. to read, actually. Yeah. I think it's, it's shocking. What and is... it's all going to bounce back against him because I don't think there's many people who actually, as you say, you know, there are a lot of people who are struggling at the moment. Mm. And, and he expects sympathy. And also he's so um, snooty mm. because was asked whether he would be going to the coronation he said oh the ball's in their field you know they've got to give me the answers to the questions i want mm. you know i mean who does he think he is he's nobody exactly he's right a, and i mean you've written about camilla um extensively yeah. angela you know camilla what do you think she's making of all of this particularly the line in the telegraph today that you know he begged his father not to marry her yeah, well, I think a lot of children whose parents separate or one of them dies don't want their parent to marry again. Um, I think it does take a while. That's one of the things which I actually sympathise just slightly. But what is a lie is that he, Harry says that she had a whole a plan to deal with the media mm. to get uh, Charles to marry her. Well, that's not true. She spent a lot of time, months and months, alone at home where the paparazzi and the journalists mm. were banging on the door and shouting. If she had a plan, she wouldn't need to do that. She's not that type of woman. She's mm. very forgiving, and she does believe that things will pass. We've seen that in her whole lifetime since she's known Charles and her relationship with the Queen, which ended up to be extremely good. I mean, Harry does mention that he felt that she was very nice with Charles and that he did it, it did help him. But that's about the only positive thing mm. I could find so far. Yeah. Um, I think she would be feel that her role at the moment is to help her husband. I mean, for the king, it's absolutely horrendous mm. to have a child to turn his back on you like that. And actually to say that he had no um, way of showing emotion. He did. Mm. I mean... 
Harry himself told me what happened when he was given the news of his mother's death. And it was that Charles, you know, had hung onto William and William was crying in his arms. And then he went to Harry and they stayed with him and tried to be calm. Charles doesn't want to cry then. He wants to be the father, mm. not to let all his emotions fall. And then they all hold hand, the three of them, to go and see the Queen uh, Elizabeth and, and Prince Philip, who were waiting to see them. He wasn't cruel. He wasn't hard. He wasn't cold. I mean, this was a terrible shock. Harry, I'm sure, can't imagine it correctly because mm. at 11, um, you don't have that sort of memory when you have a terrible yeah. But he just wants to be nasty about everyone. Everybody's nasty. Mm. Everybody's wrong. Nobody treats them right. Meghan is perfect, beyond yeah. perfect. Diana talks to her through her. Oh, God. You know, that yeah. weirdness going on. Unbelievable. Um, and uh, that the, they are never, never wrong. They never do. They're controversy and saying one thing one week that he wants to have a father again he wants to have a brother the next week is being terribly insulting mm. so it's all nonsense i mean i think people will just say oh god i can't bear this and and move on i'm sure the royal family camilla and, and the king are are working hard on what they've got to do and just not reading the book not reading the papers and just carrying yeah. on because that's their role yeah that's all they can do. Well, listen, Angela, great to talk to you. I know you're very busy at the moment. Thank you very much indeed. We'll see you soon, I'm sure. Um, it's hard to imagine uh, a more callous, selfish, self-indulgent, ghastly operation than the one currently coming out of Montecito Towers. We'll talk some more about that. We'll take your calls as well. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 499 1,000 is the number we're going to ask you to call us on, and we'll take some of your calls in a moment. Let's right now, they talk to Jamie Jenkins, independent statistician, of course, our man uh, down in Wales there telling us what's going on inside the NHS. Jamie, good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. If you get a, one of those spare Harry books, um, send one over. I might need to pop up a wobbly table at some Yeah, point well, I mean, if it gets a bit colder, you know, you can always chuck it on the old wood-burning <laughs> stove. It might keep you going for a while um, in the absence of a few logs. But, uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be able to talk about something other than Prince Harry, actually, so I'm very glad to have you on. Um, there's some figures out currently in the NHS, um, the one I'm talking about there, the ambulances. Um, I know that Rishi Sunak's claiming that he's fixing that, but I presume that'll be a long way off, won't it? Well, it will be a long way off. I think the only way he's going to stop these kind of numbers of record numbers that keep coming out every week is rather than throwing money at the NHS, is to throw money at the people who do the data to stop them publishing it because it's not <laughs> going to be fixed overnight, Mike. No. I think probably one of the... Let's start with some good news, you know, on the home of common sense. One of the good news is that we've saw at the start of the week, didn't we? Everybody's saying potentially bring back masks, look at social distancing. You know, the NHS can't cope with all the COVID and flu. Well, it looks like... I spent a lot of the last couple of years, Mike, coming on talking to you through the pandemic about COVID. Mm. Looks like we've actually peaked now with the current COVID wave that's been going across the country. So that's some good news. You can see the chart on the, on the screen now. And if you listen on the radio, kind of plots hospital admissions now all the way back to kind of August 2020. You can see the big waves that we had uh, in 2020-21 winter. And we've, you know, we have had waves through the kind of summer months. But what, remember, Mike... Uh, when we went into this living with COVID, we've been living with these kind of mini waves that have been going on, no restrictions, no masks. And the trajectory seems to be pretty similar mm. now to what we saw then. What do you in... mean that all those people claiming that we should be wearing masks at the beginning of the week were getting it a bit wrong? 
I think so, Mike. Yeah, I think they've been, you know, they're completely getting it wrong, you know, because the trend's pretty similar now. It goes up for about five, six, seven weeks, then it starts coming back down again. And that's kind of what we've got at the moment. And remember, the thing is, you go on social media, Mike, and some NHS organisations, NHS bosses go on television and they, they start giving you these big numbers. So they'll say nine and a half thousand patients in hospital kind of with COVID. What they don't tell you then is 62% of those are mainly in the hospital for other things, but they've tested them. Right. And they also don't tell you they're on one in three quarter in hospital. So the big issue with the NHS at the moment, Mike, is not the COVID uh, problem. It's not the kind of flu. They are putting pressure on the NHS. But if you tot up all of the COVID patients who are there for COVID, all of the patients in hospital with flu is actually a lot less than the number of patients who are in hospital who are fit to leave. We know we've talked about this in mm. the past, fit to leave, and they can't leave. It's just under 13,000 of those. And, and a remarkable number, Mike, is on Christmas Day in the NHS, there was 11,795 patients who were fit to leave the NHS but couldn't because of the lack of onward care, et cetera. Mm. You know, that's 11, you know, 12,000 people. I'm sure they would have liked to have gone home for Christmas. The NHS, in a way, Mike, has become a bit more of a hotel service for people and it needs to be kind of fixed. Yeah. And on the screen now, we've got kind of data around critical care. You can see that... Uh, during the 2021 way, we saw a massive number of patients in critical care beds for COVID. And that's pretty much non-existent now. So 1.3% yeah. of all the critical care beds now in England have got a patient predominantly from COVID. It's about 47, Mike, at the peak, 3,816. Mm. So this is not a virus that's putting people seriously ill in hospital anymore. But some news outlets in the past week would make you think it is. Well, exactly right. I couldn't believe the kind of um, uh, sort of scaremongering that was going on with some, uh, particularly online outlets, talking about, you know, this new thread, uh, this new uh, variant of uh, COVID that was coming through. It was only towards the middle of the week they started saying, oh, actually, it turns out it's not actually very dangerous, this new variant. It's actually less dangerous than even an Omicron was, uh, which wasn't very dangerous at all. So, I mean, what's staggering to me, though, Jamie, is you're basically telling me that there's no room in hospitals if you're sick because the people who are occupying the beds should actually be in hotels. Funnily enough, there's also no room in the hotels because they're all full of migrants. So, you know, you know, we've got two basic problems here which could be solved at a stroke uh, by this government if they had any cojones, if they could stop the migrants coming and if they could get the care homes back working and get them actually uh, to open up properly and to stop this kind of COVID madness, which a lot of the hospitals got involved with in the last week or so, you know, suddenly there'd be a, a, um, an ease with which people could be taken into hospital, treated properly, uh, and people could get back to actually, you could even put some of these people from uh, the, the, the supposed care home sector in the hotels the migrants are in. And, and the thing is, Mike, this isn't going to be fixed overnight. As you know, you can't just suddenly find staff to, to work for these kind of camps. It's no. a long-term problem. Remember Theresa May, Mike, uh, when she lost her majority, which is basically why we ended up with that carnage of the Brexit votes coming on back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, because she tried to sort out social care. She was going to kind of make people pay a bit more for social care, and then people don't want to pay more uh, for social care. That's mm. that's part of the problem you've got there, Mike. But, but you're right. If this this big problem that we've got in not getting patients out of the hospital, and it comes back to if we if we caved in this winter and brought in some restrictions because of respiratory viruses going up, which we know every single winter, when we know that there's a bigger problem within the social care sector, well, it'll be the same next year. Well, yeah. there'll just be calls. Why don't we just start masking people from November to February every single year? Absolute nonsense in terms of what we're kind yeah. of talking in terms of this, Mike. And and we've you know 
got to stand a bit firm, look at what's really going on. And for me, the big question as well is, you know, have we got to look at the NHS kind of bed capacity compared yeah. to what we've had? You know, other countries have seen other similar problems with what we've got. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly there are those who would say uh, the bed capacity in the NHS is not what it was. But an awful lot of the reason for that is that, in, as far as I know, a lot of hospitals still haven't stopped the social distancing measures that were brought in during COVID. So it means that if for every ward you've got, you've got about a third less beds. And I think a lot of hospitals haven't fixed that yet. It's, it's not as bad as what it was during the pandemic, Mike. Some, some there'll be probably some different parts of the country will be managing it differently because remember, it's managed differently across the country, the NHS. But but overall, the, the, the big thing, if you look at critical care beds, actually, Mike, we have actually got more of those than what we had mm. before the pandemic uh, slightly. But if you look at the percentage of beds that are being occupied in critical care, then again, they're saying the NHS is in crisis. There were, as all total of all the beds that we've got, Mike, there was a higher percentage occupied during the 2017-18 winter. So, you know, in terms of that, it's not as bad as what it was. So I think for me, you know, it's, it's just some carnage with the NHS. I can guarantee, Mike, you may as well book me in now and get your producers to book me in beginning of next January. Um, we'll probably be talking about a similar topic. We'll be talking probably about, you know, with general election. and This is going to be the big thing on there. Mm. This isn't going to change, Mike. You can go back, look online every single winter, the last 21 years, NHS in winter crisis. Yes. Well, look at this from Carol, uh, who says this. My son could have vacated a hospital bed yesterday, but nurses were unable to locate anyone to discharge him. So he's been there for another night. And here is the problem. Uh, she says there's very little COVID in our hospitals in West Wales. My son's in at the moment. But here we go again with masks. There's more flu around. I grew up with flu. We never wore masks. Plus, people who hid away for the last two years are catching everything. I didn't. And that is another problem, isn't it? That the, the, the attitude of the health service in this country now is ludicrously cautious. You know, they're basically telling you if there's any chance you might get sick, whatever you do, don't go out. Well, you know, that's called life, isn't it? You go out, sometimes you catch things, sometimes you get a cold, sometimes you might even get flu and be uh, bedridden for a week. You know, it happens. It's happened to me a couple of times in my life. You know, you aren't going to stop disease by telling everybody not to go anywhere. And one thing as well, Mike, linked to that is remember they were saying just before Christmas, don't go visit your kind of your loved ones if you're not well as well. And for some of those loved ones that you may go and visit, it might be their last Christmas that you could spend with them as well. So staying away from everybody, you're right. Remember, you know, we're all born to live. We're not born to kind of hide away from everybody. No. People are, you know, some common sense. If you've got a really bad virus and you're not going to go and infect everybody, but if you've got a minor sniffles and stuff, how do you decide yourself if you should stay in mm. or go out? I think, you know, some of it is just absolute nonsense in terms of Oh, some absolutely. Of and, and let's finish up with a little bit about our good friend, Mr. Mark Drakeford, or Kim Jong uh, Drakeford, as he's known. <laughs> uh, how much did it cost for us to uh, send him to Qatar? Yeah, so um, the story coming out this week, obviously, he stayed in at the five-star Ritz-Carlton Hotel in, in Qatar. Now, that didn't cost us anything, Mike, because that was paid for by the Qatar kind of government. And he, and he claims that he had to stay there for security reasons. Oh, what, now, so he's I'm, now I'm in sure. the pay of the Qatari government, is he? Well, yeah, and, and to be honest with you, Mike, if he'd stayed in one of those fan zones, I doubt many people would even know who he was. No. Because he's not well-known across the world. But to get there... Um, it was £13,000 of taxpayers' money for, for his flight and two officials. And then the economy minister, Vaughan Gethin, went out as well a couple of days later for another football match. And and to be honest with you, Keir Starmer said, you know, the Labour Party, we're not going to be going to Qatar. We're going to boycott because of the human rights records. And Drakeford reckons he was going out there 
to kind of make a stand and trying to get them to kind of change and protest and things. I, I can't imagine he was doing any of that, Mike. I mean, 13 grand for some flights doesn't sound like economy prices to me either. Well, I, I got a mate of mine who went out for one of the Wales games, Mike, and he paid 750 return on Qatar Airways. So there was obviously a lot more cheaper options to get out there. But, um, you know, in a cost of living crisis, paying for all these, like, he shouldn't have gone there in the first place. Of course Mike, he shouldn't. Honestly, I, think. And I mean, also the idea that, well, we're going to go and watch Wales representing the country in the World Cup. Well, why? You know, because obviously Wales didn't bother trying uh, too hard without wishing to put too fine a point on it. They didn't exactly set the heather on fire, did they? But listen, uh, great to talk to you, Jamie. Thank you very much indeed. Jamie Jenkins, independent statistician there with some figures uh, on the NHS, which is indeed uh, under pressure, as some other uh, news outlets would like you to call it. Uh, it might be under pressure. Um, I prefer to call it what it is, which is completely and utterly knackered, useless, not fit for purpose, in need of serious and utter, complete and utter root and branch reform. Who's going to do it, though? Who's going to grasp the nettle? Who's going to actually make it better for everybody else? This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're going to take some calls coming up very shortly, so do make them for us and we can put you in uh, because this is the end of the week. Uh, it's the first week of the new year, of course, and it's been quite a week. Uh, I was talking to somebody this morning about how we can't remember the last time it wasn't quite a big week for news. There really has been an incredible amount of news over the course of the last three to four years, just constantly. You know, from sitting on College Green waiting for the stalemate to be broken back in 2019, all the way through that kind of Brexit debacle, the Theresa May uh, months of summer, the dog days where nothing could get done, where lots of people promised things and nothing ever happened. And then suddenly there was the election in 2019 in December, Boris Johnson winning with a massive majority. Then there was the leaving of the European Union uh, at the end of January. And then, of course, COVID struck. And for two years, we were sort of in and out of lockdowns, in and out of various crises in the NHS. And ever since the end of that, um, there's been one thing after another. Unbelievable. I mean, 2022 was quite a year for news as well, of course. But now here we are at the start of 2023, um, being absolutely and utterly bombarded by an incredible story uh, told by somebody who really probably shouldn't be telling it. And that, of course, is one Prince Harry. One of the things that he said uh, is that when he was in a Taliban territory in Afghanistan, uh, when he was a member of the RAF as a helicopter gunship pilot, he killed 25 members of the Taliban. He said they felt more like uh, chess pieces that he was removing from the board rather than actually human beings. An awful lot of military people have since said that that is not at all the way that the British Army operates. It's not at all the way uh, that the British um, soldiers would regard their enemies because they have to uh, engage with them in all sorts of ways, which includes the Geneva Convention. Let's talk to Sir Simon Mayle, uh, KBE, former uh, British Army officer, uh, see what he thinks of it all. Simon, a very good morning to you. Hello, Mike. Good morning. Very nice to see you. And happy New Year yes, to you. Yes, and a happy New Year to you as well. I mean, an extraordinary story, an extraordinary book, some extraordinary revelations, really. Um, but perhaps one of the most serious um, things that, that Prince Harry has said is this claim of killing 25 members of the Taliban, because a lot of people have suggested that it puts him in a rather invidious situation, really. It makes him a bit of a target, doesn't it? Well... Mike, I'm sure a number of other people have said it. I, 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 on every level, I, I deprecate this, this, this book, this memoir. Um, for us uh, in the military, all ranks, the, 
the expression God, King and Country is not a, a slogan. It's it, it's precisely what we're at. It, it reflects the moral compass of the military. It reflects our commitment to the institutions of this country, of which, of course, the monarchy is an absolutely bedrock foundational uh, building block. And mm. it represents our commitment to the people of, of Great Britain and, of course, to our allies. Mm. Uh, uh, and so I feel for a former officer in the British Army who is also a member of the royal family to be using his personal experiences to get, you know, you say, if I may use British understanding, something off his chest yeah. uh, is, is, is bad on every level. Uh, and I feel, uh, I like to think I probably share that, uh, that sentiment with every past, present, future uh, member of the, of the armed services. Yes. I mean, it's very, very embarrassing. And I think it's the act of a very selfish individual uh, driven by God knows what to reveal things that nobody's really asked him to reveal. I mean, as journalists, we try and spend most of our careers trying to get information from people who don't want to give it to you. With this guy, it's like, just please stop giving me information. Yeah. Well, this is this idea that the royal family are, are, are some sort of celebrity family. Mm. That The royal family as an institution, an absolute bedrock of the constitutional settlement of, of this country. Uh, and it is, I'm afraid, you know, there are issues of loyalty and duty and self-restraint and courage. And I feel very sorry for everything that Harry went through as a young man. And I, I think anybody who's a family man and uh, has family will, will sympathise with the shock uh, that he obviously had. I felt very, very uh, emotionally mm. damaged, that damaged, wrong word, when my dear father died. But I was 60 years old, so I can't imagine what it's like to lose your mother or father at 13. But at the same time, the lack of self-awareness about the pressures on other members of the royal family to, of course, be human beings, but continue to uphold the value of the institution of the monarchy, which is so, so fundamental to the stability of this country over so many decades, indeed centuries, uh, in order to air private grievances, I think is, is really awful. And so much of my sympathy, my personal sympathy for him, as an individual, has been completely dissipated by this breach of, breach of faith and trust. Yeah. And what about this sort of the military family? Because we hear an awful lot, as you say, about the kind of um, uh, the pride that people have in the military. You know, some people come out of the military um, perhaps scarred by things that they did while they were in it. Um, but you'd like to think the military looks after them. Doesn't, you know, that some people fall through the cracks and end up, you know, uh, as homeless veterans on the streets. But by and large, the military... Uh, is, a, is, a, is a force for good, is, in my view. Many people enter it because they have a pride in their country, they want to represent their country, they learn a trade, they come out of that trade, they come out of the military and, and have very successful lives outside in the outside world. I mean, he's sort of betrayed all of that, really, hasn't he? Well, I think so, Mike. Um, I, I really do. We are a band of brothers. Um, and you're right, sometimes people do focus on numbers of people who are homeless or have issues after after combat uh, and i fully uh, I, I fully appreciate that and we do a hell of a lot i think both institutionally and of course as regiments individual regiments to look after to look after them but the vast majority of soldiers do what i call the right thing on a bad day even when nobody is watching mm. they enter into combat one of the issues of unlimited liability we focus on is of course the capacity to be wounded or lose your life in the service of your country the other one is, of course, to take life. Mm. That is an extraordinary responsibility to put in the hands of often very, very young men and women. Uh, and that is where leadership and a moral compass uh, and good, good, good 
NCOs and experience mm. and training and moral values really, really count. Uh, and so what Harry went through in the military is not unique, um, but it is a deeply emotional experience. Um, and it's very difficult for those who haven't been in the military necessarily to understand that. Mm. But I think going out there and waving it in those experiences in front of a global public um, is, is, is something most soldiers would, 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 would really abhor to do and mm. be very, very disappointed. Yeah. Now, that man was in the Household Cavalry uh, Regiment. He was in the Army Air Corps. He had all sorts of honorary positions. So he knew exactly what he was doing, I think, when he, he started going through these revelations. They're both unnecessary damaging and very, very undignified. Mm. Um, and I think we're all rather angry uh, that he's used his position um, in order to make, make, make these points in a very public way. Mm. Let alone, as I say, his loyalty as both a son and a commissioned, commissioned officer to his grandmother and now, and now his father as the head of the armed forces. Yeah. It is shocking, absolutely shocking, and possibly uh, not even true either. Uh, Sir Simon Mayle, thank you very much indeed, former British Army officer. Henry Bolton, OBE, has said, and he also is a former British Army uh, Lance Corporal, Harry boasting of killing 25 Taliban is unprofessional, tasteless, stupid, and most probably untrue. Soldiers don't Cyber boast of, of such things. Nationwide, by your side, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are sashaying towards one o'clock when it will be Ian Collins who takes over uh, from one. Vanessa Feltz at four. Plank of the week at seven, uh, of course. We'll play a little uh, promo for that coming up shortly. Uh, how about this from Anon? Uh, Mike, if Harry is a stallion, then Kevin O'Sullivan is a bleeding Mustang. Uh, I don't know if that's a compliment or not. Uh, we shall see. Kevin will be on, of course, over the weekend uh, and at various points through uh, the evenings as well. Uh, this is, of course, the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We've been talking about Prince Harry an awful lot. Uh, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more uh, with Rafe Hadel, Mancou, historian, broadcaster and senior fellow at the New Culture Forum. Uh, Rafe, a very good uh, morning to you or good afternoon to you, I should say. Um, the latest development in this story is even more remarkable, perhaps, than anything that's gone before, which is the Taliban. Uh, are now responding to Prince Harry and basically calling him a war criminal um, and a loser. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it, what he's done for himself here? I mean, the, de the degree of ineptitude, not only by him, but by the publishers and by his ghostwriter in thinking that there would be no repercussions at all by mm. uh, Harry admitting to, allegedly, we have to say, uh, killing 25 Taliban. I mean, you know, he was complaining about having insufficient security from the Royal Protection Officers. Mm definitely going to have to ramp up that security uh, now, given that there's a serious threat on him. And actually, in a way, there's also conceivably a, a, a broader threat even to the broader royal family and the monarchy for retributions for this sort of statement. Completely inept. You know, <laughs> Harry admitted that he's taken cocaine and mushrooms and cannabis, and you sort of have to wonder whether he was on any of those substances or all three when he agreed to just sell his soul to these publishers like this and divulge so much material that's, you know security risk, scandalous and downright tawdry. Well, exactly right. I mean, some people are saying as well uh, that the cannabis use may actually be playing a part here because um, you may or may not know um, that when Peter Hitchens ever appears with me on a Monday, he's got a very strong line on marijuana and he talks an awful lot about the crimes that are committed by people who uh, are high on marijuana. I've actually got this from Sandy, um, one of the uh, viewers of the show. I have a couple of friends whose sons took marijuana when they were young. Now they're older. They're delusional, paranoid shells of their former selves like Prince Harry. Uh, Peter Hitchens 
speaks passionately about the adverse effects of this drug on young men. And you have to wonder, um, because he is clearly in a sort of, you know, delicate state, I would say, in terms of his mental health, whether the drugs had an effect on him. Yeah, you have to. I mean, I, I'm, I lean more to the, to the idea that he's had far too much therapy. Yes. And far too much sitting in a circle drinking ethically sourced chai singing Kumbaya with Megan. <laughs> and that, uh, that's the source of all this. Yes. Because, you know, you've got to ask, when did our soldier prince who killed these 25 become our soy prince? You know, 2012, killing 25 Taliban. 2016, he meets Margul, uh, Megan Markle. And then 2019, he's scared of his brother for breaking his necklace right. and his dog bowl. And then calls not his wife, but calls his therapist first and foremost. I mean, we've, we've seen the complete emasculation. And you know, for an army man to admit having his backside kicked by an uh, by an RAF man, I think is the worst thing of all. If you're yes. anything about the army. Well, I mean, you the know, army that's... and all the people who are in the army that I've spoken to are absolutely horrified that he has effectively betrayed um, all of what the military stands for by one. Uh, completely and utterly misrepresenting the way that they refer to the enemy and completely misrepresenting the way that the British army operates and the British military operates because it does not operate like some kind of lawless band of maniacs. You know, it, it, it conforms to the Geneva Convention. Um, as somebody pointed out what I was listening to yesterday, uh, if you end up in a field hospital in Afghanistan, you're more than likely as a British soldier to be lying next to a member of the Taliban who's also being fixed up by the British uh, medical unit. Yeah, precisely. Let alone the the oath of loyalty they swear to defend crown and country. Yes. Uh, and you know, and the army take that very very seriously, having roles as, as their colonels in chief. But also, how many soldiers do you know who actually brag about how many people they've killed? Well, I've None. never met one. Zero. I've never, never met one. Exactly. No. It's the one thing you do not do. Whether it's you know taps from World War Two when we were young, we can mm. remember, or whether it's from Iraq or Af Afghanistan. I lived in, I lived in North America. Whether it's Vietnam. No one ever speaks about it, you know. Yes. Well, I don't know whether Harry did that willingly, but you know, I just get when you know when you give your life to a ghostwriter for a major publishing house, you lose control of your own narrative, and that's rather, I think, the great irony for Harry, because uh, you'll remember when the Queen died, Harry and Meghan were desperate to try to edit this book, and mm. they were denied access permissions. Yes. I think because he was perhaps a bit worried about what had happened, and that's the that's the irony here. Someone who's waged war on media intrusion for so long hasn't sold his story to a tabloid paper, but to a tabloid publisher. Mm. And even worse than that, you know, is, is that Harry is supposed to be this great champion of privacy and not having your private affairs aired in public. But he's driven a tank through his nearest and dearest own privacy. Well, and, 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 and indeed his own. I mean, as, as Piers Morgan would say, he's invaded his own privacy. I now know uh, that he's been circumcised, which is not something I ever wanted to know uh, or would ever ask him. But he's also told us that his brother is too. This yeah, is what I think is unforgi unforgivable. And the cringeworthy story of how he'd lost his virginity and the ghostwriter clearly going to town with the old, you know, uh, royals and horses, yes. stallions going out to graze. Rump yeah, it was some, kind of, it was some rump kind of cut rate Jilly Cooper novel, wasn't it? And the problem here is, right, he's given up on Britain. You know, Harry and Meghan have blamed, it's always everybody else's fault. Everything that's happened to them, it's the monarchy's fault. Yeah. It's the media's fault. Yeah. Then in the Netflix documentary, it's actually everyone who voted for Brexit. It's their fault too. Yeah, I'm surprised. And I'm surprised actually the they haven't blamed Brexit yet. Well, no, they have. They, they blame Brexit. They blame the Brexit vote for being racist mm. and actually causing the uh, the change of attitude towards Meghan. Mm. But my point is, they've given up on the UK. So we saw from that documentary and from this book, really, they're just trying to sell themselves in America. But what they haven't realised is that this is not going to play well in America. Yeah. Because for Americans, 
the monarchy is something that rises above their own vulgar celebrity culture. Yes. It's elegant, it's sophisticated, it's cultured, it's refined, and in their way of saying it, it's classy. Yes. And there's nothing classy about this. It's tacky, it's gauche, and it's declassé. And I think in the last 24 hours, many Americans will have lost a lot of respect for Harry. And you're actually beginning to see that in some of the daytime anchors yeah. and the way that they're respond, responding to this book. No, absolutely right. And, and also Jimmy Kimmel, who's one of the late night presenters, has put out um, a rather amusing, if not rather, um, shall we say, um, Mickey-taking video of the two princes reenacting the fight. And they've actually got, he's actually got the princes done up as prince you know, formerly known as, you know, um, uh, playing guitar at the end and dressed in ridiculous outfits with big hair, uh, having a fight. And so there's a kind of ludicrousness now that's going to be attached to the two princes because they are coming across as ludicrous. And I don't, I don't think William deserves to, but Harry certainly does. Well, actually, I, I've been generally surprised and heartened to look at some, a lot of the comments on Twitter and, and social media of people saying that their respect for Prince William has actually increased. Yes. Hugely, they're saying, you know, and um, as I said to someone yesterday, Prince Harry should be quite lucky if you think he got himself off quite lightly by mm. having his necklace broken. In an earlier era, he would have been sent to the Tower of London for the things that he's been saying. But I think, you know, good for, good for William in this regard. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, but where does it end? Because, you know, we keep being told that, you know, the royal family will not respond, that the king will not say anything, that Camilla will not say anything, that William will not say anything. I don't believe that that will be able to kind of last forever, will it? Well, actually, it's, it's, it's put them in a very good position, actually. There's, it's a very good power play on their part. They have risen above it and they've carried on with their duty. That's the most important thing. They're being seen to be doing good. Because, you know, imagine doing this four months after the, the Queen has died and four months before your father's coronation. Mm. This is the period for the, for the King, which is the, the most sensitive between accession and coronation. It's still a sensitive period of transition. The King is supposed to be cementing his role, reintroducing himself to the nation and to the Commonwealth realms, who don't really know him that well, and securing not only his new stamp on the monarchy, but cementing that, again the bond between the crown and the people. And it's supposed to be all about unity and positivity. And Harry has ridden a, a horse and co coaches through that. So I think the monarchy, by trying to actually avoid discussing this at all, is the right way to do it, mm. as all minds should actually be focused on, 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 the, on the coronation itself. Yes. Well, we'll see uh, whether that remains to be the case. A lot of people agree with you. Rafe, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Rafe Heidel, Menku, historian broadcaster, senior fellow at the New Culture Forum, um, agreeing with me that this whole situation has now got way out of hand. Um, it's become effectively now an international diplomatic incident because it now would seem that the Taliban have responded to Prince Harry um, and they're not very happy which is not a brilliant place to be if you're Prince Harry, is it? This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Mariana says, honestly, Harry has lost his mind and she is riding on his coattails. If they were divorced, she's going to try to do everything and anything she can to get her power to destroy him and his family even further. It is incredible, isn't it, how ridiculous the whole situation has become. Uh, one from Andy in Darlington says this, great show as always. Regarding Harry, he's always reminded me of the classic cartoon character Droopy, that miserable dog who turns to the audience with the catch line, I'm happy. Um, uh, with his loss of virginity report, it may or may not be apt to call him that, uh, says Andy. Well, here's the thing. Um, he does pretend uh, that he's now left 
what was making him unhappy and turned himself into somebody who is now inexorably happy with his new life and his new wife and his new kids and his new car uh, and his new polo pony and his new Range Rover um, and his new private jet that he can use whenever he wants that belongs to somebody else richer than him um, and his newfound freedom. Well, he doesn't look very happy, does he? For heaven's sake, um, if I was as happy as him, I think I'd be getting myself ready uh, for a week in isolation somewhere. But let's talk of isolation because Alan Miller's here, founder of the Together Declaration. You might have heard on this show uh, on a couple of occasions in the last week or so, uh, we've been talking about the latest move from local councils to try and limit the space in which we all operate. Uh, it's happening in Oxford, it's happening in Bath, uh, it may be happening in other parts of the country as well. Basically, low traffic neighbourhoods have now been turned into, or will be turned into, 15-minute neighbourhoods. Alan Miller's here, there's a big protest coming up this weekend. Alan, uh, very good afternoon to you, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mike. So, tell us uh, what you're doing, first of all, and tell us uh, what insidiousness you're fighting. Well... What's happened is uh, that low traffic neighbourhoods, LTNs, have been implemented by stealth in various boroughs across London and across the UK. Um, They were allegedly to reduce pollution, although, frankly, that's not been the case, uh, as people that have been challenging Sadiq Khan's ULEZ expansion Mm. demonstrated to him when they actually said that this would be in the actual report showed it's the same amount of pollution. It just happens to be uh, in different areas because what happens is a lot of side streets, a lot of areas are closed off, causing enormous problems for emergency vehicles, for families with elderly, if you want to drop the kids off at school, um, if you've got to work, any, everyone from chimney sweeps to cabbies uh, to people doing services, uh, all of them are restricted, but they all go onto the main arteries, which get very congregated and polluted. It discriminates against the poorest, who often have their areas really clogged up and uh, often don't have services that close to them. Now, what we've seen is as well is that the low traffic neighbourhoods, many of which came in during lockdown, so these bollards went up in streets, people weren't quite sure what was going on. Mm. Many didn't get uh, invitations to the consultations. Many people were not online. Those that did overwhelmingly uh, rejected the idea that we should have them, although the councils have decided that that is not relevant. They're not interested in the democratic process. They're pushing ahead anyway. And the 15-minute city, which is sometimes called a 20-minute city, like in Birmingham, yeah. the 15-minute city that Oxford is promoting, Edinburgh, Cardiff, Canterbury, are, are, goes another step further. It then says everything has to be uh, within 15 minutes. You should be able to walk. You should be walking and cycling, sort of mandating behaviour. Mm renting vans from dropping things off for businesses, hospitality suffering enormously. Uh, And there are additional measures from that too. So for instance, in Oxford, they're now looking at charging additional amounts for people coming into the city, like nurses and teachers uh, for their car parking and for their cars. It's already too expensive for key workers to live there. Now there's additional taxes on top of them for that. What this really is, Mike, is technocrats who have got no real solutions to think about urban planning in a sensible way or a democratic one. Because let's be honest, if everybody in Britain was saying this is what we should have, that would be something different. But we're being presented with this net zero notion that then ends up limiting us, restricting us, uh, locking down areas of our lives and, and cities and streets, which people have said they don't want. So on Saturday in Haringey, Haringey has three low traffic neighbourhood networks uh, in, in, in Bounds Green, Bruce Grove and St Anne's right. Road. 
residents and businesses are going to be out there challenging what's going on with Haringey Council, saying they don't want it. It's impacting people, families and businesses negatively. And this is happening around London now and up and down the country. And together have signatures and members, both residents and businesses in all the boroughs in the UK. And we're going to be making sure that our voices are heard with local councillors and national government about this. Yeah, because it is incredibly um, uh, sort of you know invasive in, in some ways. And when I was listening as well to Keir Starmer's speech yesterday, I was slightly troubled by some of the things he said because when he was talking about you know like um, giving democracy back to the to, to more local communities, what he actually was saying, from what I could understand, was he wanted to give more power to local councils to kind of do more of this kind of thing. You know, more or less acting kind of unilaterally against the wishes of the community, but to be able to impose fines on you for doing things that they didn't like, impose restrictions on your movement. I mean, I don't fancy any of that at all. Thanks very much. Exactly. So <clears throat> both Labour and Conservative, as it happens, but we see this particularly with Labour councils, they've become so estranged from the public. The whole idea is that we have to be regulated, nudged, pushed, restricted, fined, limited. We saw some of this with the public space protection orders where the most ludicrous rules from whether you could use a remote controlled car in a park to how many people you could walk down the street mm. with, increasing restrictions and limits. Now, during uh, COVID, that has been put onto steroids. And absolutely, the idea that we now have uh, locally, the councils or regionally, even with the mayors telling us what we should do in imposing from above is not a refreshing breath for democracy, right? Democracy and that together we've got a slogan that's take back democracy it's about the public having our voices heard being listened to when we actually do consultations and actually making sure they hear from us we want to have a situation i mean wh where did it become the case where we could suddenly have all our streets cordoned off a bit like east berlin was mm. i mean it, it's it's kind of ludicrous and no one's agreed to it and i think that the councillors and government as well should think very carefully now because a lot of people are furious people are losing their incomes they're not able to see loved ones there are, for instance, if you go to Newham and uh, other parts of uh, London now, you've got only a certain amount of passes you can have each month. It really means you can't move across London. If you try to go to, from Newham to Tower Hamlets, to Hackney, to Haringey, to mm. Enfield, you're being photographed, fined, restricted. You're being enormously limited. And we don't have alternatives either. It's not like there's been this robust discussion with the public and thought about how we can have them myriad of different solutions and the other thing about this mike is the cars always represented some independence for people some yeah. freedom and that is one of the things that's abhorrent for technocrats who like to sort of suffocate and limit if people want to join the protest alan uh, what can they do is there a place they can go and find where it is yeah so it's on saturday at 2 p.m in wood green outside the view cinemas uh, you can also go to togetherdeclaration.org uh, uh, where we've got information there and at Together Deck on our Twitter. And we'd love people to join us and get involved with this. Absolutely, because it's going to affect loads and loads of communities up and down the country. So, Alan, good, well done for you to do it uh, for this weekend in London. Uh, but it may well spread to other parts of the country uh, in the near future. We'll talk to you soon. Alan Miller, founder of the Together Declaration. Big t uh, demonstration going on in North London uh, this weekend, Saturday, to be precise. Um, uh, you can get to Wood Green Station, and that is where uh, it's all going on. But there's no doubt that there are people who run 
councils in this country, people who are, uh, you know, what I would regard as, you know, little kind of push button maniacs who want to try and limit what it is that you do and what it is that you can do and what it is that they want you to do. Uh, and it's really quite remarkable. Tim in Southampton has got something to say about electric cars. He says, Mike, the problem with changing to electric cars is the UK in the U is the UK currently uses 1.5 million barrels of oil a day. To replace this with electrical energy, the national grid would need to supply an additional 100 gigawatts of supply. They currently supply about 40 gigawatts. And this is the scale of the problem. It ignores the electricity demand for changing from gas heating to heat pumps. I think that's also true. Also, for anybody who wants to know the truth about heat pumps, just talk to anybody who's got one because they don't work very well. It's as simple as that. 0344 499 1000. Uh, on the subject of houses, Jackie says this, Mike, they built loads of new houses in my village. They don't match the other houses in the village and they look like Lego. None were affordable for local young people. No infrastructure was given. No extra school places. No extra doctors. And still, they don't even have a bus service. That's the other problem. When you build housing estates in this country, you know, make sure you build a school, make sure you build a doctor's surgery, make sure you build the road infrastructure to, to ensure that people can get around without absolutely clogging up the entire neighbourhood. It's common sense, isn't it? Why doesn't anybody have any of it apart from us? This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.